It's season two of the Carson McCullough Center's weekly We of Me. This is the first of three episodes based on our interview with Academy Award-winning actress Rachel Weisz, conducted on November 19, 2020. British-American actress Rachel Weisz is the star of a number of highly acclaimed films, including Enemy at the Gates, The Mummy, The Favorite, Disobedience, My Cousin Rachel, and many others. In addition to the Best Supporting Actress Oscar she won for her role in The Constant Gardener, she has received numerous other prizes and accolades. A Golden Globe, the Laurence Olivier Award, a BAFTA, and others. And among her many appearances on stage is her performance as Blanche Dubois in A Streetcar Named Desire. This segment of the interview has been edited for time and content. I'm Nick Norwood, Director of Columbus State University's Carson McCullough Center for Writers and Musicians, and I'm here with Academy Award-winning actress Rachel Weiss. And Rachel, you contacted me last year about visiting the Smith McCullers house here in Columbus. You were making a film in Atlanta, and you told me you'd written your thesis at Cambridge on the work of Carson McCullers and that she had always been, quote, dear to your heart, um, which is why we wanted to have you on the podcast. So welcome. Oh, thank you so much. It's a real honor and a pleasure to, to be here with you. Well, thank you. Well, I'm curious um, because I think you told me that you first read McCullers uh, as a teenager in London. But could you just talk about that, about how you first came to her work and, you know, when and where and all that stuff? Yes, I was uh, probably about 13 and living in North London. And actually, my mom went back to college to study. She was a teacher, but she went back to college. and She was studying sociology, and I think they were studying adolescence as a phenomena and so they they gave her the member of the wedding to read and somehow or other I just found the copy of the book um, after she'd been studying it and I was probably around Frankie's age maybe a little bit older I think she's 12 when the book begins and so it was just an incredibly powerful experience reading it Um, I'd never been to America at that point I'd never been to the south it was somewhere very far from North London, but it was such an incredible depiction of, of adolescence for a, for a girl. Well, you mentioned that when uh, you came to the Carson McCullers house in Nyack, and you said that for you, it really spoke to you about what it was like to be an adolescent girl. And so, I mean, could you say more about that? What, what was it, do you think? What was it about Frankie Adams that you connected with? I think just her restlessness, you know, the extreme shifts in emotion, kind of loneliness, passions, excitabilities, depressions. Or, I mean, I think all the things that probably all adolescents go through. Yeah, just really, really, really spoke to me. And I, I, and I think immediately at that age and still now today, the way in which McCullough's writes her style, um, the simplicity of it, the clarity of it, it just, to me, it just feels like I'm, I'm with an old friend. It just, it makes utter sense to me. Did you then read other works by Carson McCullers or was it later when you were in college that you read uh, the other stuff? When I was an undergraduate, I read the other stuff. Yeah. And I think my, um, it was an undergraduate dissertation and it focused probably more on the member of the wedding was probably in it too, but it was actually, I think more the Ballad of the Sad Cafe. I remember that was something else that you said as we were talking about. It's always been interesting to me, the lover's 
of Carson McCullers disagree about what is the great work. The, uh, the artist Lonely Hunter, the member of the wedding, Ballad of the Sad Cafe, and even some, the French critics apparently think uh, Reflections in a Golden Eye, now that's the great work. So it's always really funny to me how even people who love her work disagree about what is the greatest. And you said, I was telling you that Hilton Alls, we had him here in Columbus to talk about uh, mostly The Heart is a Lonely Hunter because it was the big read book and the library was doing that. But uh, he said, uh, Heart is a Lonely Hunter is a great book, but Ballad of the Sad Cafe, that is the great work. And you said, I agree. Yes. Although since you and I met um, at the McCullough's House in Nyack, I, I had never read Reflections in a Golden Eye, and I mm -hmm. read it this summer. So, so, so I can, I, the only one I haven't read is Clock Without Hands. So mm -hmm. I'm behind mm -hmm. that one. Yeah, for me, Ballad of the Sad Cafe, I just stole my heart away. But it's, I, I think they're all, I don't know how to make a hierarchy of, of, the, of the greatness. I'm not, I don't yeah. know how I would do that. But yeah, the Ballad of the Sad Cafe, really, really stole my heart. And I wrote a lot about, I, I, I think the, 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 the essay was about um, focused on the grotesque. The place was not always a cafe. Miss Amelia inherited the building from her father, and it was a store that carried mostly feed, guano, and staples, such as meal and snuff. Miss Amelia was rich. In addition to the store, she operated a still three miles back in the swamp and ran out the best liquor in the county. She was a dark, tall woman with bones and muscles like a man. Her hair was cut short and brushed back from the forehead, and there was about her sunburned face a tense, haggard quality. She might have been a handsome woman if, even then, she was not slightly cross-eyed. There were those who would have courted her, but Miss Amelia cared nothing for the love of men and was a solitary person. Her marriage had been unlike any other marriage ever contracted in this county. It was a strange and dangerous marriage, lasting only for ten days, that left the whole town wondering and shocked. Except for this queer marriage, Miss Amelia had lived her life alone. Often she spent whole nights back in her shed in the swamp, dressed in overalls and gum boots, silently guarding the low fire of the still. With all things which could be made by the hands, Miss Amelia prospered. She sold chitterlings and sausage in the town nearby. On fine autumn days, she ground sorghum, and the syrup from her vats was dark golden and delicately flavored. She built the brick privy behind her store in only two weeks and was skilled in carpentering. It was only with people that Miss Amelia was not at ease. People, unless they were nearly willy or very sick, cannot be taken into the hands and changed overnight to something more worthwhile and profitable so that the only use that Miss Amelia had for other people was to make money out of them, and in this she succeeded. Mortgages on crops and property, a sawmill, money in the bank, she was the richest woman for miles around. She would have been rich as a congressman if it were not for her one great failing, and that was her passion for lawsuits and the courts. She would involve herself in long and bitter litigation over just a trifle, 
It was said that if Miss Amelia so much as stumbled over a rock in the road, she would glance around instinctively as though looking for something to sue about. Aside from these lawsuits, she lived a steady life, and every day was very much like the day that had gone before. With the exception of a 10-day marriage, nothing happened to change this until the spring of the year that Miss Amelia was 30 years old. It was towards midnight on a soft, quiet evening in April. The sky was the color of a blue swamp iris, the moon clear and bright. The crops that spring promised well, and in the past weeks the mill had run a night shift. Down by the creek, the square brick factory was yellow with light, and there was the faint, steady hum of the looms. It was such a night when it's good to hear from far away, across the dark fields, the slow song of a negro on his way to make love, or when it's pleasant to sit quietly and pick a guitar, or simply to rest alone and think of nothing at all. The street that evening was deserted, but Miss Amelia's store was lighted, and on the porch outside there were five people. One of these was Stumpy McPhail, a foreman with a red face and dainty purplish hands. On the top step were two boys in overalls, the Rainy Twins, both of them lanky and slow, with white hair and sleepy green eyes. The other man was Henry Macy, a shy and timid person with gentle manners and nervous ways who sat on the edge of the bottom step. Miss Amelia herself stood leaning against the side of the open door, her feet crossed in their big swamp boots, patiently untying knots and a rope she had come across. They had not talked for a long time. One of the twins, who had been looking down the empty road, was the first to speak. I see something coming, he said. A calf got loose, said his brother. The approaching figure was still too distant to be clearly seen. The moon made dim, twisted shadows of the blossoming peach trees along the side of the road. In the air, the odor of the blossoms and sweet spring grass mingled with the warm, sour smell of the nearby lagoon. No, it's somebody's young'un, said Stumpy MacPhail. Miss Amelia watched the road in silence. She had put down a rope and was fingering the straps of her overalls with her brown, bony hand. She scowled, and a dark lock of hair fell down on her forehead. While they were waiting there, a dog from one of the houses down the road began a wild, hoarse howl that continued until a voice called out and hushed him. It was not until the figure was quite close within the range of the yellow light from the porch that they saw clearly what had come. The man was a stranger, and it is rare that a stranger enters the town on foot at that hour. Besides, the man was a hunchback. He was scarcely more than four feet tall, and he wore a ragged, dusty coat that reached only to his knees. His crooked little legs seemed too thin to carry the weight of his great warped chest and the hump that sat on his shoulders. He had a very large head with deep-set blue eyes and a sharp little mouth. His face was both soft and sassy. At the moment, his pale skin was yellowed by dust, and there were lavender shadows beneath his eyes. He carried 
a lopsided old suitcase which was tied with a rope. Evening, said the hunchback, and he was out of breath. Miss Amelia and the men on the porch neither answered his greeting nor spoke. They only looked at him. I'm a-hunting for Miss Amelia Evans. Miss Amelia pushed back her hair from her forehead and raised her chin. How come? Because I'm kin to her, the hunchback said. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carson McCullough Center's weekly We of Me. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more at McCullerCenter.org or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. This podcast was brought to you by Columbus State University's Carson McCullough Center for Writers and Musicians and by Columbus State University's Recording Studio. The music you heard during the intro and outro was written by Lilia Uge in honor of Carson McCullough's 100th birthday on February 19th, 2017. I'm Nick Williams, technical director for these podcasts, and I hope you have a great day. Susie Parker DeVoe's reading from The Ballad of the Sad Cafe is in the library of the America's The Collected Works of Carson McCullers. The music you heard during the reading was Oblivion by Astor Piazzolla, performed live in Legacy Hall by Kelly Henry and Leo Quintero on November 10th, 2019.